welcome to Series 3, Episode 5 of Mav Geeks, A Military Aircraft Obsession with me, Ginny Carlin and Jamie Gordon. Today, we're speaking to former pilot, navigator, photographer and author, Ian Black. This is Mav Geeks. Yeah, hi Ginny, how are you? I'm very well, thank you Jamie, how are you? I'm good, I'm wet, but I'm good. It's done... <laughs> done nothing but rain all week. Starting on a, on a, a sad note, I guess, I was just going through my Twitter feed earlier on and I passed a bit of footage, aerial footage, which I kind of dismissed in the first instance. And then I saw it again. And it was footage of the mid-air collision that happened at the Wings Over Dallas air show this week, a collision between a B-17 and a P-63. The footage is just horrible. And you know, obviously we need to pause, I guess, and these things happen, but it's horrible when it does. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Jamie. And, you know, I've been thinking about this this week and with the whole kind of aviation community as well, feeling a very sad loss. And like you say, thinking about the six men who died and their families and friends, obviously foremost, and, and then thinking these guys gave the time to kind of keep some memories, aviation memories and experience alive, as it were. And it's not an easy business always, is it? Flying old aircraft. And I think that was really brought to the fore over that weekend. I was looking at the B-17 was operated by the commemorative Air Force Gulf Coast Wings and their motto is to educate, inspire and honour through flight and I just thought well, what a perfect tribute really to these six guys who gave their life doing that really so just remembering them and the rest of the aviation community I think at such a sad time. And I read the biographies of those involved and you just think about all that knowledge which has been completely wiped out. Absolutely and where do we get that from again? Two vintage aircraft, the B-17, the P-63 King Cobra. You know these guys have put loads of hours and have had, like you say lots of knowledge and experience on them that's gone too uh, it's just a tremendously sad time all around and of course i am done veterans day as well which makes it all the more poignant absolutely jamie just like i say it's just a very very sad time and just an awful thing to see but we move on with our aviation week onto gladly more happier things and that is did you know jamie this week saw the raf carrying out their first ever flight in the uk Using 100% sustainable fuel from RAF Bryce Norton. I did see this. Well, I was actually at Bryce when it happened. I didn't see it. I, got, I was so mad I couldn't get down to see it. Uh, it was the Voyager. And I was thinking to myself, first of all, who gets in a plane with sustainable fuel when you've not tried it before? You know what I mean? <laughs> I'd be quite worried about it. <laughs> I'm assuming they were test pilots. Yes, I believe they were test pilots. But wow, I mean, how, how do you make it? I, I'd be like, is it going to get to a certain point? And, you know, I've got an old MX-5, Jamie, you know, that I go on about it all the time. I love her. Um, <laughs> but I, I use the really expensive, it's E5, I think I use, rather than the E10 petrol, because she's an old girl. But I was just thinking, like, you know, some of these voyages and some of the other aircraft and everything, is it the same for them? I don't know. Hopefully they'll get tweaked and stuff. You uh, mentioned the cleaner fuel. Mm. It, yeah, it's clean but at good grief does it cost a lot more so you just wonder whether sustainable fuel is sustainable financially presumably very green but mm. can we keep producing this stuff i don't know and i think as well are we going to be using sustainable fuel on stuff like the typhoon on other aircraft i don't know it's just it's really interesting but where we are at the moment with global warming and all the other environmental issues we've got a fantastic thing really 
I mean, it, it's not electric, but it's a step in the right direction for certain. <laughs> Can you imagine having to plug the plane in at the service station? <laughs> It'd be quiet though, wouldn't it? <laughs> cheeky cheeky Mackie while you're just waiting for your typhoon to, to get filled up to the top so it can go again. Uh, something else that I saw this week, again on Twitter initially, uh, was some fantastic photos of the Red Arrows, who are currently doing a tour of the Middle East, uh, coinciding possibly with the World Cup. But the backdrop to get photographs, it's just the perfect place. Blue skies, not a cloud to be seen. And them doing their stuff, it looked really rather good. Honestly, couldn't believe it the other day, looking on the Facebook page for RF Leeming, they regularly have a hawker hunter that lands there. And I don't know about you, Jamie, but I would love to speak to the pilot of the hawker hunter. I mean, what a beautiful aircraft. Apparently, it is the epitome of a pilot plane. <gasps> it flies like a dream. It looks fantastic. The hunter is just one of those iconic jets and just gorgeous lines. Talking about beautiful lines, our guest this week has had the opportunity to fly in several aircraft who you could describe as having beautiful lines. Ian Black was basically always, always going to fly fast jets, taking after his father. He started off in the Phantom in the back seat, then converted up to the front seat and then went to fly Lightnings, flew the Mirage 2000. And here he is, where we had the opportunity to chat with him a wee bit earlier. I guess, Ian, flying was kind of inevitable, wasn't it, given your upbringing? Tell us a bit about your history. Um, yeah, it was, really, because my father was a pilot, but not a semi-pilot. He was a fast jet pilot in the RAF for uh, 30 years or so. And so my whole childhood was spent around airfields in East Anglia watching my father fly, and he was a well-known pilot and also uh, quite charismatic um, sort of debonair chap, a lot of aerobatic displays and formation displays, and he flew an aeroplane called the Lightning, which was a Mach 2 fighter from the 60s that um, oozed charisma in terms of uh, it was very loud, it was very noisy, <clears throat> and had a very high performance. So, you know, being brought up by that, I guess it would be very hard not to be impressed by your father. And I'm guessing, well, I know for a fact that you um, you got some trips in fast jets at quite an early stage in your teenage years i believe i did yeah um well i only had one and i'm, I'm impressed that you managed to find that out <laughs> i was 14 years old and my brother who is four years older than me he had flown in a lightning and gone um to mach 2 or a thousand miles an hour with my father in 1969 i think it would have been and i would have been around about nine i think at the time <clears throat> and i was very envious of him and I remember, I think I probably cried, uh, going to the wow. Anglia TV studios where my brother was interviewed and I was made to go and sit in the green room or the darkened room while he took the limelight. And my father said, well, you know, when you're 14, I'll take you flying in a, in a jet fighter. And I just assumed it would never happen, but it did. And I got to 14 and three quarters of it was that whatever the legal age was to fly an, an ATC cadet, an air training corps cadet. And my father took me flying in a Harrier. And I look back now, and I look at a 14-year-old and think how highly irresponsible it would have been <laughs> to put a 14-year-old boy on a Martin Baker 00 ejector seat and take him flying in a Harrier in Germany in some pretty grim weather and then hover uh, over the airfields, uh, as Harriers did, with an aeroplane that had a very unenviable safety record. Um, and uh, my brother said to me the other day, actually, he, he joked about it and said how irresponsible my father was. 
I mean, he was doing the right thing that he, you know, he was trying to encourage me to become a pilot and join the RAF. But I do look back on it now and think, you know, my, my children did some pretty crazy things and riding my motorbike when they were 9, 10, 11, 12, but flying in a Harrier jump jet at 14 years old, I didn't have a clue what was going on. And I guess had something gone wrong and I had to eject, I would have at least had the claim to fame of being the world's youngest ever ejectee. There's that um, thing on the internet, isn't there, Ian, where it goes, uh, you may be cool, but you'll never be as cool as, and it's always like some rock star sort of riding a unicorn somewhere. But if we could get that photo of you in the Harrier at 14 years old, then we could actually do that. You know, you might be cool, but you'll never be as cool as 14-year-old Ian sat in a Harrier jump jet. <laughs> well, yeah. And then there were. There was only two photographs taken, which I have got one copy still of me standing with my father. And I had, at the time, David Barry had just released Ziggy Stardust, and I think I'd taken my mother to the hairdresser with me, and it was in Germany. So I'd convinced the hairdresser to give me a Ziggy Stardust-style Barry haircut, much to my parents' disgrace. So not only did I look ridiculous as a 14-year-old, <laughs> but I think I also had a bit of a, a David Barry Ziggy Stardust hairdust. I didn't have the lightning flash on top of my forehead, but I did look the part. And, and of course, he, you know, it wasn't just the speed and the lightning. It was pushing technology, literally pushing the envelope, wasn't it? It was, and you know, when you look at the Lightning, it had a very sophisticated radar for its time, and it was the forefront of technology. You could go to 75,000 feet, you could do Mach 2 in it, and you were strapped to this rocket. There was nothing that could beat it in terms of technology. I was described as you know, slightly tight around the shoulders and quintessentially British because it was very um, esoteric and sort of slightly Heath Robinson. You know, that if they couldn't find a way of fitting a pipe from A to B, they would bend it in a certain shape and wrap it around a hot jet pipe or something, you know, hand-fashioned, uh, and only one pipe fitted that aeroplane. And if you put it another one, it wouldn't fit. So they were, they were definitely, somebody described them as handmade machines, you know, built by absolute craftsmen of the day up in Morton in Lancashire. Given the fact that your dad flew Lightnings and then you went on to fly them yourself, were there any surprises when you finally got into that cockpit? Oh, about about <laughs> 5,645,000. It, it was totally alien to me because, uh, you know, you can't get into a single-seat Mac 2 aeroplane and go, you know, I am the son of George, so he'll help me. There's nobody there to help you. You've got to do it yourself, and you've got to have the right skill set to be able to to perform and fly that aircraft. You can't rely on having a, a senior officer as your father. You've got to go and do it yourself. Hmm. I was just going to say, Ian, um, a few weeks ago I was over at Duxford, and they've got a Phantom in the American hangar there. And uh, some of the people that I was with were sort of looking at planes and what's that, what's that, what's that. And I, of course, being a complete av geek, was able to sort of know 95% of them. One of them said, what's that? Pointed to the Phantom. I know it perhaps sounds a bit silly, but you know, like when planes live up to their name, and I always think the Phantom has the shape, has j just the, the name Phantom kind of really suits it. So I knew straight away what it was. Do you think it lived up to its name? The Lightning uh, definitely did. And um, there were a couple of other names for the Lightning, one which was Excalibur. And I think it might have been Thunderbolt or somebody would ring in a note. But lightning, you know, a flash of lightning. Phantom is the same. You know, a phantom, uh, like Phantom of the Opera, gives you this vision of somebody, mm. you know, a ghostly figure that just slips through the night and moves silently from one place to another. And 
I, I think the phantom, I don't, there is probably an English word for it, but what is the word where something sounds like it? Is it onomatopoeia or something? You know, it looks menacing, doesn't it? It, it, it looks like a war machine. Uh, and that name Phantom is a bit like Hellcat or mm. you know, if you had an aeroplane yeah. you flew an aeroplane it's called the Hellcat it would be really cool if you had a fighter and called it you know the the, the seagull <laughs> it, it would just it wouldn't sound right would it it was it's um it's important to have the right name to and I know they spend a lot of time when they when they design the, the typhoon you know the typhoon conjures up an image of some wild storm I think the Phantom was actually named, yes. And your association with the Phantom was kind of back to front in terms of you started off in the back seat and then went to the front seat? I did. Um, and it's again, it's a rather long story, which uh, um, I won't bore you with all the details, but as I said, I, I left school slightly underconfident. And I, I remember thinking when you're sort of 14 and 15, there's the two questions that people ask you when you go around to people's houses with your parents is, A, have you got a girlfriend or a boyfriend? And B, what do you want to be when you leave school? You, you know, when you're 14 and 15, nobody has an idea what they want to do. And I just sort of drifted through school. I wanted to be a photographer. And, you know, if you see that picture of me at 14, with my long hair and my flared trousers, I wanted to be a photographer like David Bailey and be cool. And I went down to Harrow, I think it was Harrow Polytechnic in those days, with my father to see about doing a, a course in photography. And my father sort of marched me in with his military bearing and saw all these layabouts with long hair and jeans. And I could just tell he said, no, there's no way my son is going to go to be a photographer. I'm going to march you off down to the Army Careers Office. Because in those days, if you, if you didn't join the RAF, you know, you join the army if if you were from a military family. And at the time, there was a Northern Ireland crisis going on and soldiers were out walking the streets in Belfast. And my father thought that that would be like Swiss finishing school, but, but without the, the mountains of going to Belfast and walking around the streets of an SLR and, and being in actual combat. And he thought, you know, go and do three years of that and then you'll come out of there as, you know, a, a more grounded individual, I think they'd probably say. So I did do that, and I went to Sandhurst, and after about six months or so, I just went, what on earth has my father stitched me up for, running around the Barossa training area in Sandhurst and being beasted to death by this sergeant major? I've got to get out of here. And I, I sort of went home on leave, and I said to my father, I think I've made a bit of a mistake here. I really don't want to be in the army. So we lived next to an army, an RAF recruiting officer at the time in Bentley Priory in uh, North London, and he said, well, if you want, you know, I'll, I'll fix you in for an appointment on Monday morning and off you go. And I went, you know, that'd be fantastic. And I went down there and I passed all the interviews, but at the time they were they were shorter navigators, which is what I like to tell people, but I probably didn't pass the aptitude for being a pilot or I was marginal. And they said, you can be a navigator. And at the time I didn't want to be in the army. So I said, yep, I'll, I'll be there on Tuesday. So I left the army and joined the RAF. Um, and the amusing part of the army story was I, I got accepted to the RAF and I went and knocked on the sergeant major's door. And he was, you know, your typical cartoon character sergeant major who shouted at everyone. I knocked on his door and I said, look, I'm really sorry, um, sergeant major, but I've had a change of heart and I want to go and join the RAF. And he said, well, you can't do that. He said, you're our best officer cadet. You're going to win the Sword of Honour. You're going to win the top cadet of the year prize. You're, you're the best student we've ever had here at Santos. You really, you know, you mustn't leave. You've got to stay. 
And I was sort of elated. And I went, oh, well, thank you very much. And I, I turned around, I saluted, opened the door, walked outside, feeling very proud of myself. And I thought, actually, no, I, I do want to leave. I want to go and be a pilot or I want to go and join the RAF and want to fly. So I knocked on the door again. And he said, yep, come in. And I said, look, I'm really sorry, so I've made it, but I have made up my decision. I do want to go and join the Royal Air Force. And he said, oh, well, get out. You're useless. You, you'd have never passed anyway. And I marched out the door and then joined the RAF. So that that was my circuitous route to the RAF and then uh, becoming a navigator. And then I got posted to Phantoms in RAF Germany. Wow. I love. It. I lo- still love how people call it RAF Germany. I know that myself and Jamie were with BFBS in, in Germany, I think, probably just after it had finished being RAF Germany. Um, but some of the amazing stories of, of these Cold War jets in places like Wildenrath and Guttersloe, just amazing. Well, what was your favourite between the Lightning and the Phantom, do you think, Ian, if you, if you had a favourite? Well, I mean, I, I was in the, in the Phantom, I was a backseater, so I, I operated the radar. I didn't fly the aeroplane. And the first year I was there, I thought it was you know very difficult um, job to do I was working at my max capacity. And the second year, I thought, oh, it's actually quite good fun now. I'm getting used to it. Um, and in the third year, I thought, God, this is dangerous, sitting in the back with no controls over the aeroplane. And as a navigator, you only really had the Phantom or the Buccaneer, which was also based in Germany, as a choice of fast jet to go on to. And to me, every flight in a Buccaneer uh, or anything like the Harrier where you flew low level, you had to draw maps and you had to do target runs and time yourself and be very precise about where you were and what time you were arriving over a turning point, et cetera. Whereas in a Phantom, you didn't have to do any planning before you took off. You know, that's the beauty of being an air defense pilot or navigator is that everything you do is stored in your head. So you took off. I never took my map out of my pocket uh, because I knew after a year or so, every village or town in Germany where I was and I could work out what headings we needed to be to get where we wanted to be pretty much without recourse to a map. And then as, a, as an air defense navigator, all you have to do is operate the radar and, and look at the radar and interpret the radar. So that, to me, I was very fortunate in that all the airplanes I wanted to fly, to answer your question, I did fly. I did fly the Phantom, which I wanted to do. I wouldn't really have wanted to fly the Phantom from the front seat because I, I gather well, I did fly it a few times. It wasn't a great airplane in terms of, handling the airplane whereas the lightning was so i i was fortunate in whatever i wanted to do like if i had a dream list or a dream wish i ticked all the boxes but what prompted the the going from the back seat to the front seat because i've seen firsthand the sort of um wit and repartee that goes on between navigators and pilots uh, what made you want to swap jobs um uh, well i guess you know to be like my father um and be a pilot and I'm sure I'll get some stick for this, but it's, it's all very well sitting in the back of an aeroplane and you are doing a very important, vital job, but actually flying an aeroplane is um, a completely different skill set, which I've used that word already, but it is a skill set. You know, you have to fly, think, operate the radio, the radar, whatever it is on your own, whereas when you fly in the back, you don't have the luxury of having to use the stick and the throttles and make sure the right speed. So to become a pilot was always my absolute ultimate dream. Um, and I didn't want to give that up. You know, I didn't want to you know, just become a navigator and then go to another navigator tour and then become something else. And I felt that I always had to improve myself and 
jump onto the next run of the ladder, maybe. What was squadron life like for you, Ian? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, and I, th- I think you it's one of those things, like a lot of things in life, where at the time you don't appreciate how good life is, you know, the camaraderie of being on a unit with a hundred grand crew and 25 pilots and navigators or on the lightning, it was 12, 14 pilots. You all get along really well. You know who are the good pilots, who are the bad pilots, who are the good navigators, who the bad navigators are, but you know, you carry the, the weaker people with you. Um, that, that sort of team spirit of getting stuff done is fantastic. You know, you never look at the clock when you go in and say, Oh, another three hours before lunch or two hours before five o'clock. Um, I guess it's, I mean, I always probably get laughed at now, but it's, it was pretty much an extension of public school. As somebody said to me, you know, you left at 18 and then joined the army or the air force or the Navy. And it was just like being at school. You know, you were with a bunch of mates, boys and girls who were all having a good time. Nobody thought about dying. Um, you just got on and did the job and felt that you were doing a worthwhile job of doing the defence of the UK. And then you flew the Lightning yourself. Um, and in fact, you were one of the last to fly Lightning, is that correct? And your dad was one of the first? My dad was um, one of the first uh, to fly the Lightning in 1960-61 as a squadron pilot. And then I joined the Lightning training flight in 1986 and it had been earmarked for Colosia for several years, but had always been extended due to the fact that its replacement was late arriving into service and there was always reprieves of six months or a year or something. So when I when I got to the Lightning, I was supposedly the last course, but there were three or four courses after me, but none of the people who went through succeeded in getting through the course. So I, I ended up by default, really, of being the last person to qualify in the course. Was that you based out of Binbrook? It was. And I I arrived in October 86, I think it was. And bizarrely, uh, I had the house three doors down from where my father had been a squadron commander there. And we had a house at Binbrook. And I was nine years old with my brother, who was then 14, watching lightnings flying around. And then what would it have been 20 years, just shy of 20 years later, I arrived as a a baby pilot there. I was going to say, Ian, if you were fancying buying uh, a Phantom, then as of 2021, uh, sorry, 2020, uh, there is an F4 Phantom built in 1959, used by the Americans, up for sale for a very cool $3.25 million. So, I mean, it would make a fantastic back garden ornament. Well, if if you want to start a crowd raising, crowdfunding <laughs> scheme, I'm very happy to be the president of that. And you just have to run it through my wife because two years ago I actually bought a Lightning, <laughs> which is <laughs> it was for sale at a museum at the price of a small family car, which I thought was a very good investment and is now, in fact, at RAF Bimbrook are waiting to be restored by a group called the His Church. You've got another lightning there, so it's undercover. So I know you're probably joking, Ginny, about buying a phantom, but as I already have my own lightning, I think my wife would probably throw her toys out of the cot if I bought a phantom <laughs> as well. You see, love Ian, to. you are just the gift that keeps on giving. Do you want to get it airworthy again, or is it for a static display? 
Um, it's all very secret and in 1960s parlance, all very hush-hush. But um, the, the plan, RAF Bimbrook, was closed in 1989, I think, and uh, fell into a bit of disrepair. And it's now being taken on by a charitable trust called the His Church, who do some wonderful work giving out um, clothes and food for people who need it. So they've taken on the hangar and the SHQ. But the guy running it, Trevor Cockings, MBE, he actually is passionate about aviation and preserving the history of Bimbrook. So he very kindly allowed me to keep my aircraft there and the future plan is to have a small museum there. And if you give you a world exclusive, the plan would be that my Lightning is going to have uh, the wings that fold up and down and it would go on a trailer and could go around the UK as a living, breathing exhibit. Whether I'd be embalmed and put in the cockpit or not, I'm not <laughs> sure yet. But that is the plan, um, and yeah, it'll it's, you know it's kept me busy of my the million of projects. But um, there's a, an exciting future ahead, both for RAF Bimbrook, the former RAF Bimbrook, and also for my own Lightning, which I know you you thought when I should buy a Phantom, you probably weren't expecting me to say, "Well, I already own a Lightning," so two would be extravagant. Yeah, towards the end of your RAF career, you converted to the Tornado F3. Yeah. Um, and flew, you know, flew in the first Gulf War. What was that like? Well, it wasn't as scary as being a, a bomber pilot, that's for sure, um, who I have the utmost respect and admiration for. But it was still um, it, it was still quite exciting because the RAF hadn't really been in conflict since 1982 in the Falklands War, and now it was 19. 19- what, 92 or 91, and all of a sudden we were uh, facing a threat that was in the Middle East and nobody had ever thought about going to war in the Middle East. And if you know, talk about taking your eye off the ball, the RAF had spent 20, 30 years focusing on going and dropping weapons in the former Soviet Union. And now all of a sudden we were looking at maps of Iraq and Kuwait and Saudi Arabia and it was, it was comical, really, because the RAF in the 50s and 60s had had influence in the, the Middle East, but they'd clearly not updated all their maps. And like uh, a scene from Blackadder, when he looks at the map and he says, you know, it's, it's a barren, featureless place outside there, so and he says, well, you know, maybe you should turn the map over. And if you turn the map over, it was pretty much the same because <laughs> nobody would updated the maps to have roads or railways or towns or anything on them, and they were literally yellow maps with a bit of sand on it and that was it and all of a sudden we were now going to have to go and I mean I was lucky I did air defence but we still had to go to Saudi Arabia and fly in their airspace over totally barren featureless terrain that we'd never ever trained for so it was a, a, co- a total culture shock as well to be um, training to go to war for real and it made you think that all the time that we were training to do the Cold War, uh, maybe not so much in Germany, because in Germany we were trained to do the Cold War and we did chemical warfare training and biological warfare training, and it was all very, very serious. And we used to fly, drive around in our cars with our chemical warfare suits in the boot of the car and our tin helmets and our gas masks, and we did expect to go to war and a horrible nuclear war. In the UK... You know, we trained for the Cold War, but we we never really thought it was going to happen. And we sort of, I would definitely say we didn't do it half-heartedly, but certainly when we looked like we are going to have to go to war in Kuwait, then all of a sudden we had to ramp up all our training and we realised that what we'd been doing before was 
a little bit, um, you know, half-hearted to use that same expression again because now all of a sudden the rule books went out the window. And I remember we used to do air combat to a minimum height, I think it was 10,000 feet, and then we did it down to, <clears throat> to 5,000 feet. And then as it looked like we were going to deploy to the Gulf, we lowered that to 2,000 feet. So we would be doing full-on air combat training to 2,000 feet over the ground. And for anybody that's listening, if you do air combat training at 10,000 feet, you can pretty much put your aircraft into any attitude that you like. So you can put it into the pure vertical going up, or you can put it in the pure vertical going down. And whatever happens, 10,000 feet is going to be enough space of sky to recover from. If you do it at 5,000 feet, you need to think fairly carefully about putting the nose very low down to recover from that you know, vertical dive. If you now go down to 2,000 feet, when you start pointing the nose at the ground, you've got to be absolutely sure that you know you've got enough height to recover. So all of a sudden doing full-on air combat training at 2,000 feet where you're you know, pitching the aircraft in the vertical and you're rolling upside down, you're pulling, you've got to make sure that you're, you're fully aware that you've got enough room to roll you know, wings level and start pulling again. So when we were doing training in the early 80s, it was quite serious. When we were doing training to go to the Gulf War, it was extremely serious where you know, we, we could have got killed doing training. And there were, sadly, several tornado, not air defence ones, but ground attack ones, who crashed before the Gulf War and you know, even out in the Gulf because the training became so real and so on the edge that you know, accidents were inevitable, really. So that, that was... Um, you know, we definitely moved up a gear uh, on that side before we went to war. Uh, I know we're kind of running out of time and we could go on and on about you flying Mirages and going to South Africa. And But I do want to sort of mention the fact that photography has been a pretty constant thread throughout your career, both, you know, flying and afterwards. It, it has. And, that, and again, that was, you know, when I said at the beginning about emulating your father and having you're putting your father on a pedestal and having him as that sort of hero worship. He he also was very keen on publicity and PR and and preserving the moment, the historic moment. And he had a friend called Arthur Gibson, who was a well-known Kodak photographer who'd come to the house. And I saw his work, and I always felt, even at the time, that because you were so privileged to do the job you were doing of flying around in a lightning or a phantom or a mirage or, or a tornado – that I wanted to make sure that for future generations, they knew exactly what we were doing and to capture the moment. So my photographic um, passion, I guess, was not only the photograph, but also of capturing the moment and trying to preserve that little piece of history so that in 20 years time, you could see what we were actually doing because, you know, memories fade, don't they? And uh, you need to put something into Kodachrome. So tell us about um, your books, because I, I think you've you've moved on to wanting to do coffee table style books, but you know, using your aviation photography and and your big collection of photos. Uh, yeah, I do. In I, I used to write for Osprey Publishing, who went bust. I think they're part of the Michelin Group, and I worked for Haynes Publishing, and they also stopped aviation. And in nineteen, so two thousand fourteen, I started a company called Fire Street Books, which is uh, www.firestreetbooks for the pub, publicity, um, of trying to produce uh, books that I felt um, portrayed the photographs as well as possible. So if you imagine an aeroplane going 
across the full page of a, a book. You know, you didn't want to have the gutter, as it's called, the centre part of the book going through and cutting it in half. I wanted to make sure all the pictures were um, standalone pictures and didn't get spoiled. And, you know, the little nuances that I, f- I got taught by my friend Jonathan Falkner, who was the senior commissioning editor at Haynes, he would say to me, you know, if you're going to have a pitch on the left, you want to have the nose of the aeroplane going out the left and the tail on the right so it flows out of the book. Little tiny secret tips that I've now given away to all your listeners of how I do my books. So you you've, you sort of, again, you sort of move everything up a gear and make everything as, as good, as best quality as you can um, to make them into sort of works of art that they're not going to end up in a garden centre or, you know, a, a second-hand bookshop so that people treasure them. So, Jamie, we have to say, you might think you're cool, but are you as cool as a 14-year-old having a flight in a area? With your dad. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And I tell you what, just after the interview finished, we uh, he kindly agreed to send me a book and it arrived. And it is the most beautiful, big coffee table book full of pictures of phantoms. And so, you know, I'm in my element. So thank you again to Ian Black. Dude's got his own English electric lightning. That's all I'm saying. That's all I need to know. He can come back anytime. Absolutely. Listen, if you want to get in touch with us and we'd love to hear your comments, any suggestions of people that we might need to talk to then do email us at mavgeeks at bfbs.com and next week our mini mav episode we're taking it right into the present day and the future uh, looking at a civil airliner actually flown by katie lee mbe who's also a reservist it's the 737 max we're going to be looking at that and we're going to be looking at katie's flying career as well I think that's everything from this week, Jamie. I need to go and have a lie down thinking about being ejected at 14 years old from a a Harrier. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Good luck with that. (laughs) Cool. Uh, See you next week. Cheers. Cheers.